just even as David's doing the sound, just I'm thinking about here's a man and uh, his family coming early uh, on Sundays twice a month, serving to set up, serving sounds, and uh, and just one little example of our, a gift to us of faithful service and a blessing. So thank you, David, for all your work. And what a blessing. There's one other. Yes. Go for it. And there's many others, but there's one other person I want to take a little bit of time before we get into the Word this morning um, to honor. And uh, this person has served for some years uh, in our church. And this person has served us um, faithfully Sunday after Sunday in ways that you may not even be aware of. But the fact that you've had a bulletin and notes and prayer list uh, every Sunday after Sunday, you've had announcements um, is because of this person's faithfulness. And I, I think you probably know who I'm talking about, Nikki Havisto, yeah, doing food on Sunday setup. And doing that amidst uh, really constant sickness. Nikki's struggled with migraines. And so Sunday after Sunday, producing the bulletin, talking to me, chasing me down to get, to get the message and the, and the text and so forth. And uh, every, every Friday, every Sunday, producing the bulletin, serving us so faithfully. And... Uh, and Recently, with Pam being able to come as our admin assistant, this responsibility of the bulletin has been transferred to her, but I thought this is an important juncture for us just to recognize the gift of Mickey Havisto. So we have a little gift and some flowers. If Mickey, if you could come on up. I know this is embarrassing, but we love you, and we are so thankful for you. So we just wanted to... Yeah. <laughs> this is for you, too. Oh. Thank you, too. Thank you. We love you dearly and so thankful for you. So uh, that's just a token of our, our gratitude and our affection for you. Um, what a blessing. How blessed we are as a people. Well, this morning we're going to look uh, at John chapter 11 and Isaiah 53. So those are two places you can have your fingers in in your Bible. Uh, Isaiah 53 would be just slightly to the right of the middle of your Bible. So if you want to find the middle and go to the right a little bit, you'll find the book of Isaiah. We'll be in chapter 53 as well as starting out in John 11. And this is part of our series of Encountering Christ in the Old Testament. We're almost at the end of the series. Uh, There's one more message after this. And I trust that this has been uh, something that God has met you through that he's spoken to you. Uh, And I I pray and I trust that your Bible is bigger and fuller and more meaningful as a result as we see how God is not a God who kind of, you know, does things in the New Testament but doesn't do it in the Old Testament or does it in a way that's inconsistent. He's a God who has been planning what he would do from before time. So in giving us the Bible, it's not a book that's just kind of pieced together here and there. It's a book who the author is God. And so he weaves these themes through and through the Bible. And so it's our prayer that that your experience through this series is just to see that, to see the wonder and the fullness that comes as we use our whole Bible to to understand the Scripture. So trusting God that he's working this and even working it today, let's go before him in prayer and ask him to speak to us. Lord, we just thank you. You are just so wise and glorious and good. And Lord, you've given us your word. You've worked over time and you've delivered this amazing book to us that reveals the glory of the infinite God. And we just thank you. And we ask you, Lord, to 
do just that today to unworthy sinners, but sinners clothed in the righteousness of Christ, forgiven by His blood. Lord, that You would reveal Your infinite glory today through Your Word, through the preaching of Your Word. Lord, we want to hear from You. and So we thank You so much that we can come before Your presence and that You Yourself speak to us through Your Word. We ask You to do that. And Lord, we pray the result of this would be glory to You because You are good and You're worthy. And Lord, that we would be built up in you and for you and your purposes as a result as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to look in chapter 11 of John. We're not going to look at this whole story. We have done that. We did it, I think, back in the spring. We looked at the story of Jesus, the resurrection and the life. But we're just going to focus in on, on a few verses here, the interaction between Jesus and Martha. And we're going to spring from that, looking um, at the Scripture's the Old Testament. We know the story that Jesus, dear friend Lazarus, has died, that Jesus purposefully stayed away. And this moving story uh, portrays Lazarus and his two sisters, grief-stricken, the Savior coming down finally to their hometown, and they, the sisters encountering Jesus. And so we pick up in verse, uh, verse 20 with Martha, one of the sisters, the older sister, coming to Jesus. And it says, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met Him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever You ask from God, God will give You. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. God's Word, John chapter 11. It's amazing interaction that Jesus has with Martha as He comes and, and she meets Him and tells Him about her disappointment, really, that He wasn't there and that, that if He had been there, that her brother wouldn't have died. But she's placing her faith in Jesus as the Christ at that moment, even as she struggles and he tells her that her brother will rise again. And she, she, as a good Jew who knew her Old Testament, says, yes, I know he'll rise again at the last day. She knew her Bible. She knew that the Old Testament taught that, that there would be this resurrection. That God has uh, deemed that His people would not just die and perish, but that His people would have life. So she's a, a good Jew and she knows that, so she says that. She says, I know he'll come at the last day, and then Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. That this thing is not just a concept, it's not just something that will happen at the end of time, it's not just a doctrine that's taught in the Old Testament, but that I am, Jesus says, I am the summation of this. I am the one who's come to fulfill this promise, to be this truth incarnate. I am the resurrection and the life. And for Martha, I believe that was a new idea. 
So what I want to do today is just kind of learn what Martha learned and then learn what Martha learned, I think, through this encounter. So we're going to look at what the Old Testament teaches about the resurrection, about life after death. We're not going to do uh, a complete study. There's no way to look at everything the Old Testament says, but we'll, we'll look at, we'll do a survey of the Old Testament. And then we're going to look at how Jesus could say that He is the resurrection in life. Uh, this wasn't something that Jesus just made up on the spot. You know, oh, hey, I just had a thought. I'm going to invent a new idea here. No, uh, no, I am the resurrection life. What do, you, what do you think of that? Does that track? No, He didn't just come up with it on the spot that the Old Testament spoke of Him being the one who would bring about, fulfill the resurrection so that He could say, I am the resurrection and the life. So let's do that. Let's look at first what the Old Testament teaches us about the resurrection. I think you have notes there. Hopefully you can make some notes as you go along. Don't feel compelled to take notes, by the way. The whole desire with giving notes is to, to serve you. Sometimes it's just best as you listen to messages to jot down a few things that you believe God speaks to you. And if you're able, we, we seek to provide CDs and put the messages online. You can listen to it later on if you want to take more extensive notes. Sometimes notes can be distracting. So if they're distracting, uh, just give your attention to listen as God would minister to us. So, resurrection. This term, I think it's important as we start to define this term of resurrection. What does resurrection mean? What does the Bible teach overall? Resurrection is not, um, is not some sort of resuscitation from being um, unconscious or, or partially dead or anything like that. It's not an awakening. Resurrection is being brought back from full deadness, complete deadness, to life. So it's not resuscitation. Uh, it's not that people are partially dead and God revives them or Jesus. There's full, it's being brought back from death, full deadness, to life. And the Scriptures teach consistently that this is the end state for God's people. To be someone who belongs to God is to be someone who has life, everlasting life, as their destiny, as God's purpose. God has intended from the very beginning that His people would live eternally in true life in His presence. So, uh, we can look in our Bibles as Martha would have known, and just seen from the very beginning this truth, this truth hinted at. In the book of Genesis, God creates uh, the heavens and the earth. He creates uh, all of the universe. And then he, he, place, he fills the universe. And then He puts mankind over the universe. And He says things about His creation. He says it's good. And then when He makes mankind, He says it is very good. God brings life. He breathes life. Life has always been something that God is after. He wants to bring life. He wants to bring life to His people. So it's called very good. And we see life forms in the, in the book of Genesis. God is a God of life. He's not a God of death. Death in Scripture, right from the beginning, is a negative thing. It's, it's not the primary goal of God to bring death, but to bring life. So He brings life. He makes mankind. He makes mankind in His image to live eternally. And He places Adam and Eve in a garden. And we've talked about that in the past, this royal garden where they would walk with God, where they would rule the earth. And He puts two trees in the garden. 
There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or the discernment, the tree whereby they would discern, be called to discern good and evil as they obeyed God. And then there's another tree. It's the tree of life. So God puts the tree of life there in the garden. And those two trees are, are speak of God's intention for mankind. And we've talked about that too, how this theme of the tree of discernment and, and discerning good and evil was something God called mankind to do. We know Jesus was really the only one who did what was right. When the serpent came and said, no, no, this is good, Jesus said, it is written. And he, he was successful where Adam when Adam and Eve came, the serpent said, know this, at that tree of knowledge and good and evil, they fell, and they fell. But there was another tree there. And it was God's intention that had Adam obeyed and believed God and obeyed with his wife, that he would take of the tree of life and live forever. So God made mankind in His image to be His, his under-rulers over the earth, to obey Him and believe Him, and to take of that tree and eat and live forever. That was his intention. And we see in the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible, that tree of life being in that city of God where his people dwell. So life, eternal life for his people has always been God's intention. And we see this through Scripture as God starts to redeem mankind and he, he comes to, the, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and brings uh, them to himself. He promises blessing and he promises life. Later on in Matthew 22, when Jesus is dealing with the Sadducees, they were a group who uh, composed of many priests, and they were a group who, who didn't believe that there was life after death. And they only believed that the first five books of the Bible were God's Word. The rest they didn't hold as Scripture. And, and they, they came to Jesus in Matthew 22, and they tested Him. They tried to get Him to... to they tried to corner Him into an argument where he would have to say, well, you know, this resurrection thing doesn't make sense. And wonderfully, our Savior in that encounter uh, counters their arguments by using the something from the first five books of the Bible. He doesn't have to go elsewhere. He, he uses the very books that they believed in. And he brings them to the truth, to the reality that it has been God's intention to bring life to his people. So he says in Matthew 22, after rebuking them, he, he says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, I think you have that, good. Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus quotes from the first five books, saying that God says when He reveals Himself, I am am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I, not, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as long as they were alive, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right now. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in my presence right now. They have been resurrected spiritually. They're before me spiritually. And they await the physical resurrection at the very end. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of resurrection life. Right there in the, in the first five books, Jesus, it's just a wonderful, masterful answer to them where he proves that he is a God who brings resurrection life. This has always been God's heart for his people, eternal life. 
It's always been His intention. And we can look through the rest of the Old Testament. The Psalms are full of things. There's stuff in Job. Just throughout, we see that consistent testimony that God would bring resurrection life. We, if you study your Bibles, you'll see other places. Isaiah, I think it's 26, and Hosea, uh, Daniel 12, a number of verses that speak of, of even the, the last day, the resurrection day, when people would be raised physically from the dead and be judged, and those who are, are God's people would, would enter into eternal life, already having experienced their spiritual resurrection, now they're physical, being there on the new heaven and the new earth, and those who, other, who are, have rejected God to eternal condemnation, exile from God. So that's there in the Old Testament. So Martha, when she has this conversation with Jesus, and Jesus says, your brother will rise again, these are the things that are filling her mind. These truths. She knows that on the last day he will rise again. Physically. But then Jesus introduces what I think was a new idea for Martha. Not that it wasn't in the Old Testament. They just hadn't seen it, I think, as clearly. He introduces, introduces this new idea that I am the resurrection and the life. This isn't just a doctrine. This just isn't a truth. I am the embodiment of this truth. I am the fulfiller of this truth. Now, we could probably look at a number of verses, but I want to look at Isaiah 53, 10-12, and just camp a little bit on here to learn about how Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So if you could turn there in your Bibles, or we'll have it up on the screen as well. We seek to serve you in putting the verses on the screen, but I'd encourage you, if you have your Bible, to be looking down, perhaps, at your Bible, um, just to get to know your Bible better. I, I wouldn't want to discourage you from just leafing through your own Bible as we go. But Isaiah 53, this is uh, part of a segment of Isaiah talking about the Lord's servant. There's so much good stuff here, but we're just going to look at verses 10 through 12. Listen to what it says. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We know that this section in Isaiah is speaking of the ultimate servant, Jesus who came to fulfill what was prophesied in Isaiah 53, which was on God's heart, was on God's mind from eternity past. Before time began, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit existed and they counseled together and they thought about what would happen and what they would do and they decided in counsel together that the Father would send the Son. And the Son would be incarnated as a man, as a baby, and be born and live among God's people, among Israel, and would obey the law and fulfill all things, and then would go to the cross 
and bear, bear the sins of many. That the Father would pour out His full wrath, His holy justice on the Son. Before time began, God determined to do that. And so in the Scripture, He has communicated these truths from the very beginning. You can see even in Genesis, promise of this. And we see in Isaiah that the Father would redeem His people. That the Son would shed His blood and die and be crushed for sin. You see, God in His counsel among Himself knew that mankind would fall into a very sad predicament. He knew that this glorious creation about whom He said it is very good would fall from that place of glory into a sad state. A sad state of rebellion against its Maker. Against our Maker. Whether that rebellion would be blatant or subtle, it comes in all forms. For some, the rebellion is just out there and you see the the broken lives all around them. But for some, the rebellion is inward. For some, the rebellion is in the form of religious self-righteousness. Instead of acting out in open rebellion, there are some that, that their rebellion is to seek to earn their way to God, to be the good kid, to be the good one who bit by bit racks up their own merit in their own eyes to bring before God and say, God, I'm good. You need to treat me well. You must treat me well. That's just as rebellious as the one who says, forget it. I want nothing to do with that. I'm going to go out and be crazy and do life on my own terms. Both those are rebellious. There's actually a great book on our book table now by Tim Keller about this very thing, The Prodigal God. A great book to read and learn about these Jews. And a great book to give to your friends for Christmas. So if you want to check that out at the break. But the reality is, is we are in this sad, ridiculous state of sin and rebellion, of brokenness and emptiness. And sometimes we, well actually most of the time, actually probably all the time, we really don't see the fullness of the reality of this. That our rebellion is just deep and dark. We don't like to look inward and see it because it's scary. And Chris Lundgaard in his book, uh, The Enemy Within, great book as well on our book table, he compares our souls to a haunted house. That there are rooms that are full of scary creatures that are there. And if we really started to probe inward and look at our motivations and our thoughts, there'd be lots of rooms with lots of scary creatures. Could you imagine if they came up with a microchip? I talked about this before, that they could implant in your brain and transfer everything to the projector that goes on in your mind. And just as all that you thought, and it would just compile all your thoughts and all your motivations, and it would just put it in a nice YouTube video that you could post on the Internet and we could show on a Sunday. Would you want to be here for that? I wouldn't. I don't want people to see my haunted house. And that's the reality, the, the sad reality. We're made in the image of God. God said, this is very good. He was pleased. But the brokenness and the fall from that place is so drastic. So dark. And if you looked at our thoughts and our motivations, we would clearly and quickly see that we just do not measure up to God's holy requirements to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
to love a God who has been good to us, only and always good to us, giving us food, friends, shelter, clothing, blessing, provision, always and only been good to us. And we said, no. That's what our thoughts would show. And not only would they show us lacking love for God, but for each other as well. God said, the Board says to love our neighbor as ourselves. And our thoughts would reveal very clearly that we love ourselves to the detriment of others. This sad predicament God knew would happen. He knew this would happen. And so, He determined in amazing love. Amazing and unmerited love. Because there's nothing in you or me that is truly beautiful in His eyes because of our darkness. It is all because of His love. He looked at us and in amazing and irrepressible, unstoppable compassion and love, He said, we're going to do this thing. And I'm going to send My Son. We're going to send the Son. And He is going to suffer and die after living a perfect life, live His life to the point of obedience where He would die on the cross and bear the just penalty for this gross rebellion. That He would become sin for us. That He would take on Himself that sin and the penalty for that sin. And the Father in His perfect justice would pour out His wrath on the Son. That the Son might absorb all of it. So the Father could freely turn to us and all those who put their faith in Christ and say, what sin? You're mine. You're righteous. I forgive you. I welcome you into my presence. And I'm so eager to have you with me forever. I have a future for you that you can't even imagine. That's the Father's heart in sending the Son for us. And that's what this passage in Isaiah 53 teaches us. So let's take some time to even dig in a little more into this passage. It says, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Do you see that there in verse 10? When his soul makes an offering for guilt. When he goes to the cross and he dies for our sin, there's a promise that goes with it. He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. God promised in Isaiah, and I'm sure the Savior knew this verse. As He went to the cross, He knew the promise that on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the cross would be offspring, would be days prolonged, would be eternal life on the other side of the cross. And that was God's promise that after He had made this offering for guilt, He would be raised from the dead. Philippians 2 teaches us that He is the resurrection because He obeyed perfectly to the point of death on the cross. He pleased the Father. He fulfilled all things. He earned the right to eat of that tree of life because He obeyed God perfectly to the point of death for my sin. My horrible sins. Everything in every room of that haunted house was placed on Him. And He obeyed to the point that He would actually take my sin on the cross. Your sin on the cross. He humbled Himself lower than all of us in bearing our sin. And the Father was so pleased, it says in Philippians 2, that He raised Him from the dead. You have pleased Me. You have done it. You have finished. You have accomplished the plan. 
And now you've earned the right to eat of that tree of life. So I'm raising you from the dead to live eternally. He earned the resurrection. And He earned and He bought offspring. That's us. It says He shall see His offspring. That's you and me. Part of His motivation, a large part of His motivation in going to the cross was to see you, believe it or not. (laughs) To have you and me with Him. To enjoy you. To make you like Himself. To prolong His days knowing us. And then it says later, out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. This suffering and death that He experienced resulted in Him being satisfied. Some years ago, two years ago, we as a family, uh, we had had a number of floods in our basement. We were out, out near a swamp. And we decided that we needed to build a a French drain system around our house. And, uh, and it was a lot more work than we thought it would be. Uh, and we worked all summer. Actually, my son Caleb did most of the digging, I think. And after three months of shoveling and digging a thousand cubic feet of dirt, tarring walls, tarring ourselves, laying gravel, putting piping in, we finally covered it up, hooked it up to the sump pump, covered it up, and it's been great. We were, we were finished. And we haven't had a flood since. And when we were done with that, there was a sense of, ah, we're done. We're satisfied. we got a dry basement. When the Savior was done, when He had died for sin, when the Father raised Him from the dead, He said, ah, it's done. My people are purchased. Their destiny is set. It is finished. And it will be finished. He said, ah, he was satisfied. It goes on in the section saying, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. That because he did this, he gets booty. He gets reward. And he gets to divide this portion. God raises him from the dead and pours out grace and reward on Him. And it says He divides this portion with the many and the spoil with the strong. Because He obeyed, God gave Him this portion and He gets to share it with others. So in Ephesians 4, it tells us that when He ascended, He gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to His people. He got this reward and He said, I'm going to share this reward with My people the inheritance of the Holy Spirit, the gifts for the church, the gifts to accomplish my purposes, I'm going to pour out on my people. So Ephesians 4 teaches us that this booty, that this portion is for us. We are the many. We are the strong in Him with whom He shares. Wonderful, wonderful work. So He has done it. The resurrection comes from Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. Only He has pleased the Father. Only He has earned the right to eat of the tree of life. Only He has done it. Only He has obeyed the ultimate test and earned the right to be raised from the dead with eternal life. Only Him. Only He has done it. He alone. 
Yet, there's more to the story. Because in the act of dying and rising again, He carries all His people with Him on His coattails to the same. All those who would turn from self and sin and say, Jesus, only You have done it. You're my only hope. All these get to ride with Him to this wonderful reality. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the One. And He brings it to us through faith by His work as a free gift. So, Isaiah 53, among other verses, teaches us that. Well, let's spend the remainder of our time just talking about how to live in light of the resurrection. Given these truths, given this reality, how then should we live? What does it mean? What does it mean that this happened, that the Old Testament teaches us this, that we, the New Testament gives us the fulfillment of that? Well, the most important thing you and I can do in response to the resurrection, the first and highest priority for you to do in light of this is nothing at all. Nothing at all. The highest priority for us is to simply say, amazing. Or, thank you. To, to look and to believe and to rest and rely on what He has done. Only He has done it. He accomplished it all. And so the first and most important thing is to worship. To put our faith there. To trust Him. If you were to go down to the Museum of Fine Arts and look at the Rembrandt display, and look at Rembrandt and look at one of the paintings, you're not going to break out your Crayola 64-pack and start touching up Rembrandt, right? You're just going to look and you're going to be amazed and say, what a great painting. The same thing for us. He doesn't want you breaking out your Crayola 64-pack, folks. He's got some coloring for you to do somewhere else, but, but that's not what he's asking first and foremost. He's asking you just to say, amazing. Thank you. I love you. I want to follow you. That's your first, that's our first and highest priority. But we're also called to action as a result of that. Because when you behold that, when you look at that Rembrandt, when you see that, it changes you. And his work on the cross and his resurrection was for the purpose of worship and faith, but also the purpose of transformation in and through our lives. And so. He calls us to action. He calls us to, to, to follow through with the results of that. Daniel chapter 12 has a wonderful verse. If you can put that up, John. Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. This is a verse that springs off of the Isaiah 53 principle, uh, truth. And it says, uh, Daniel is being spoken to by the angel Gabriel, I believe it is, and he's speaking of the end times, speaking about Daniel. And I think speaking in reference to Isaiah 53, and it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. He's speaking of the end. And I believe he's speaking primarily of Christ. For Christ is the wise one. He is the one who turned many to righteousness. But he's speaking of more than just that, I believe. He's speaking of God's people. And we are called now as God's people who have been affected by the resurrection to partake 
with Him in what He's doing to lead many to righteousness. To be part of His plan to lead many to righteousness. That we might shine. That there might be a reward that we enjoy as well. It's interesting to note though, that that reward is just not being a bright star shining somehow. or That's not your, really your reward. I think Scripture teaches us that the reward actually is people. The Lord's reward is His people with Him. And our reward also are the people that we have affected through our lives. The people that we have shared Christ with and have come to Christ at some point, whether it was just a little seed here that you sowed and 20 other people did the same, it's those people. But it's also the people that you helped along the way who already do know Christ. That you helped them be formed into the image of Christ. You were a key part of preserving them for that last day. And ensuring them that they would walk in the reality of their life in Christ. So Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul lived that way. He knew that his glory and joy on that last day would be people. And so he invested his life. He says in Colossians 1, Him we proclaim, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that powerfully works within me. Paul labored for that reward people being there with Him. That's what we're called to as well. So we are called to first be witnesses. To be people who just maybe carry around a little photograph of the Rembrandt picture and say, hey, check this out. Have you ever seen anything like this? Who carry around with us the Gospel message and just say to others, hey, check this out. Have you seen anything like this? That we tell the story to others. To witness to this reality. In 2 Kings 7, there is an amazing story. The army of the Syrians have surrounded... You can actually close that for a minute, Johnny. The army of the Syrians have surrounded the city of Samaria. And there's a famine in the city. People are starving to death, literally. And uh, the army's encamped there. And there are, I think, four lepers outside the city gates. And they're starving to death too. And they say to each other, hey guys, uh, you know, if we go back in the city, we're going to starve to death. If we stay here, we're going to starve to death. What can we lose? Why don't we go over to the Syrian camp and see if they'll have mercy on us and give us something to eat. And so, in the morning, they go over to the Syrian camp and they come there and there's nothing there. There's no people there. But the tents are still there. The fires are still there. The food's still there. The drink's still there. The treasure's still there. And so these four lepers have a party and start eating and drinking and start hoarding the treasure. It's amazing what they find. What had happened is, is God, the, the night before I think, had caused the Syrian army to hear a loud and large army coming. And they got scared by the sound of this large army and they fled the, fled the camp to get out of there before the army came and took them over. And it was only something God made them hear. So the lepers come that next morning and stumble on all that. And then it says in our verse, something hit them as they were enjoying themselves. Then they said to one another, 
we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. They were sitting there enjoying the food and the drink and the treasure and something struck them. They said, this isn't right. We're keeping this to ourselves. And it, it would be right for the king to be very angry with us if we continue here. And so they went and told them, well, guys, you and I are like those lepers. We have stumbled into the camp. God Himself has orchestrated that stumbling. But we have stumbled into the camp. You or I are not smarter or better than others. We simply stumbled in that camp like some lepers and we find ourselves in the camp right now eating and drinking, knowing what forgiveness is, knowing what eternal life is, while there's a world out there starving to death. And I don't know all the reasons why. I don't understand my own soul. But it can't be right to keep this to ourselves. We must find motivation in the good news to tell others. So, tell the story. Build relationships with others. Tell others you meet on the street. We must tell others about this. We must tell them the good news. Do whatever you need to do to tell others. That's how we live in light of the resurrection and of next and final part. We are called to live in light of the resurrection by walking together and the truth of the Gospel. We need to find our place in a body of believers, a local body of believers. God's purpose in the resurrection is to give us forgiveness and eternal life and to form us into the image of His Son. And He has determined to pour out gifts because of the Son on His people in the context of the local church. To get that church, to bless that church so it might be intermixed Connected together, interconnected, walking together in gifts. That was, that is his intention. That we together might be formed corporately and individually into the image of Christ. Resurrection life is what we're headed for. He wants to bring resurrection life to us here. He wants to bring it to us individually and corporately, and he wants to shine his resurrection life to the world. It all mixes together. You cannot separate these things. Worship, walk, and witness tangled together. But He calls us to this walking together. If we are not careful, we will view the local church like a cruise ship. This is an illustration I borrowed from Jim Donahue, a friend of mine. We will view the Christian life like a cruise ship. Being in your local church is like a cruise ship. You're on the ship to maximize your comfort. You're on that ship to get that best cabin, maybe the one with the view of the ocean. You're on that ship to get that seat that's just where the sun is. You're on that ship to find the coolest games to be a part of. And if we are not careful, that's how we will view the local church as a cruise ship. Now, there's a lot of blessing in the Lord. I don't mean to say there isn't. There's a lot of cruise ship-like things in walking with God and being blessed. But a better analogy for the local church is not a cruise ship, but a battleship. God calls us to be on a battleship. What's the difference between the two? A battleship has a mission. It's there to fight the enemy, to extend the territory of the country. It has a mission. 
And everyone on that battleship knows we're here for a mission. Not only do, do we have a mission we're after, but I have buddies around me who are depending on me to do my part in that mission. And I can't let my buddies down. Do you know often in war, the great heroes that we read about, you know what were their motivations? It wasn't freedom for their country. It wasn't even victory for the war. Often it's just a simple motivation. I'm just, I'm just, I owe it to my buddies to not let them down. I can't let my buddies down. I've got to give my all for the sake of my buddies next to me. That's what God calls us to. That's the mentality He calls us to. It's that battleship mentality. We are called as His people. We're each given gifts and roles. And your buddies are depending on you. When you're not part of a local church, not only do you rob yourself of the benefit, when you are not actively engaged in a local church, not only do you rob yourself of the benefit, you rob others of your benefit to them. And He calls you to be part of what He's doing. To bring your gift to bear. To bring your resources to bear for the mission that He has. To make His name known. To conform His people to the image of God. If the band could come up as we close. So this is what we're called to in light of the resurrection. To worship. To simply say, amazing. Thank you. To tell others this glorious good news. To find ways to do that. Whether it be with a friend, whether it be with someone on the street, whether it be together in Alpha, whatever way we need to, to tell others. And then to walk together that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And He calls us to live in light of this. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank You. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that You have done it. And I pray, Lord, as a result of what You have done, we would just worship and say amazing. We would stare at that Rembrandt and just enjoy it and think of how beautiful it is and, and how wonderful it is to be forgiven and be with You. That we would worship and rest in You and rely on You but also, Lord, that we would be motivated in light of the resurrection to be witnesses to whomever we can, however we can. Lord, would You grant us divine opportunities? Would You grant us boldness, Lord, to speak? Would You grant us fruit, Lord? May we fill this place to overflowing as we witness by the power of Your spirits. Lord, may there be all types in here for Your glory. And Lord, Lead us in finding our place in this battleship as we are conformed to the image of Christ. For your glory we pray. Amen. 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 Let's stand as we close in song.